This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is card number 109T, Joe Slusarski, pitcher, Team USA. It's the 4th of July, so we thought a Team USA player made a lot of sense. But before we get to Joe, we do have some recent events having to do with Team USA, perhaps some foreshadowing of today's card. That's David. We found on Twitter that a top player for Team USA for the men's soccer team turns out is a pretty good baseball player. Matt Turner grew up playing baseball at a pretty high level. In this video from the U.S. Men's National Soccer Team account, there is a video of Turner taking swings at Bush Stadium in St. Louis with Nolan Arenado. That's not enough, is it? Let's go, man! Are you kidding me? Let's go! Is that a home run? That's two in a row. Give me in the derby. That's gone for sure. Get out. That's good for me, man. That's good for me. Let's go, man. That's the quickest celebrity hitting I've ever seen in my life. I'll take that. Yeah, he hits four home runs in batting practice and pretty good shots, too. Turner played through high school in the infield, and he credits that training as something that made him a very good goalkeeper when he decided to switch to soccer in high school. And you can even see it when Turner is getting ready to stop shots. He has a ready position that looks very familiar for a a shortstop or second baseman and very, very quick feet and a quick first step. So great job, Team USA. They are currently in the Gold Cup, and that tournament goes through July. But now it's time for today's card in Joe Slusarski from the Traded Set. And David, why are we talking about Joe today? As it is America's birthday coming up. We've got a Team USA card. Recently on our friends over at the Two Strike Noise podcast, they pointed out that Joe Slusarski has a ridiculously detailed saber bio. (laughs) So of course I had to check this out. Yes. And this is a 5,000 word saber bio. Oh my. And it was written in 2008. So there's even some stuff missing. They could update this with some recent developments in Joe Slusarski's work resume go to his linkedin as i did but nice job rory costello includes an interview with slusarski and a lot of good information about joe's career he was an olympian a first round pick and had a 13 season career and has a connection with some friends of mine in springfield illinois springfield an all-american city so it all ties together let's go to the front of 109t and we have joe slusarski in red white and blue The USA at the top of the card is in red, white, and blue. His hat is blue with red USA on it. Even the nameplate in the lower right corner is red with white print. There's a blue sky. There's a white undershirt. This really couldn't get more American. We've only done one of these USA cards 
and that was Ty Griffin. I don't think we discussed that the lettering of the team name is multicolored. Unlike the other cards, which all have a block of color and the same color, this one has red and white stripes and a blue at the top. It looks pretty interesting, a little bit different than the other cards. I do like this jersey. I like the clean, just plain USA across it. It has a good throwback look to it. One thing that I don't like about the lettering on the card and on the jersey is when USA has periods in the abbreviation. You know, I have a podcast about abbreviations called AFAIK. And as far as I know, USA is not properly abbreviated with periods. It's just supposed to be USA without those. I think it's very awkward on the jersey to have the periods after the big capital U.S. and A. It is odd. And eagle-eared listeners will notice the fireworks in the background that are going off. (laughs) People are being very patriotic a day early here in Chicago. Those could be fireworks. They could be NASCAR cars backfiring. Could be anything. Insert your Chicago joke here. It could be the commotion from the Sabre conference that's happening this week. All of these Team USA cards are basically the same. A young man staring straight at the camera. (laughs) He is clean cut, although he has a very faint hint of a mustache, potentially future mustache. We'll see if that happens later in his career. Going to the back of the card, 109T, we have Joe Slusarski, pitcher. Height 6'4", weight 195, right-handed batter and thrower. Born December 19th, 1966 in Indianapolis, Indiana with a home in Springfield, Illinois. Something I did not notice when we discussed these Team USA cards before, the tiny fine print at the bottom that says, the USA Training Center is in Millington, Tennessee. USA Team is sponsored by Plymouth. How much money do you think the Topps Corporation got from Plymouth? To have that promotional material at the bottom of the card? Or do you think they were forced to do that as a condition of showing the players? They had to inform everybody which automobile company was sponsoring Team USA. I rode around the country in a 1988 Plymouth Voyager Mm. owned by my family. So right around the same time, that, that was my parents' dollars at work sponsoring Team USA. So... That's my bit of patriotism. This card now worth about equal to a 1988. (laughs) It was a solid vehicle. Joe was born in Indianapolis. His dad, Richard, came from Poland as a teenager. His mother was named Sharon. His parents divorced and Sharon took the kids and they moved around from Indianapolis to Kentucky into the Metro East, the Illinois side of the St. Louis suburbs. And then finally in Springfield, Illinois. Springfield is the capital of Illinois, a place that I lived for four years and currently spend a lot of time throughout the year. A city of approximately 115,000, best known for Abraham Lincoln, who lived there from 1837 to 1861. The home of Lincoln is a museum site run by the National Park Service, and there's also a beautiful presidential library and museum. Lincoln is also buried at the Oak Ridge Cemetery in Springfield, a really lovely setting. Lincoln's monument there is a a great testament to the president. And Lincoln's connection with the city is something that I have never experienced anywhere else in the world. And that is a single person who is so intertwined with a city. 
Springfield loves Abraham Lincoln more than any city I've ever been to loves a single person. And it's really striking the amount of Lincoln stuff and also the proximity to history as you walk around the city where there are cobblestone streets where you feel like you could be walking on the same street that Abraham Lincoln did. As a person who believes that Abraham Lincoln is our country's greatest president, it's really an amazing place. And the connection to Abraham Lincoln is, is truly an amazing thing and something that I love about Springfield, Illinois, and like to show people around the city when I'm there. Although it has the great emancipator as their favorite son, it also has a difficult history with race relations. And in 1908, there was a race riot in Springfield where white residents attacked and burned many of the black neighborhoods in town. And that riot showed to the rest of the country the depth of mistreatment of black citizens, even in northern states. And for this to happen in the town of Abraham Lincoln just 40 years after his death was a wake-up call. And that was a catalyst that led to the creation of the NAACP. Springfield is the capital of Illinois. It is the third capital after Kaskaskia and Vandalia. And the Capitol building itself is the tallest domed capital in the country, even taller than the United States Capitol, 361 feet tall compared to 288 feet at the U.S. Capitol. So just a grand building, a beautiful building that I spend a lot of time in. Growing up in Springfield, Joe was athletic, but was not an amazing prospect. He also said he wasn't a great student. Quote, I didn't apply myself. I was a rebel. I had a stubborn, hard-headed streak. And he went to high school at Sacred Heart Griffin, or SHG, as it is known among Springfield locals. And that is the largest private school in Springfield. SHG has a decorated football team and a few baseball players who went pro. Famous alums include 2016 Olympic gold medal swimmer Ryan Held, Colts wide receiver Malik Turner, Pitcher Jeff Facero, 1988 Tops player and future topic Dick Schofield, and a friend of the pod, Mike. Joe played as a sophomore at SHG, and then as a junior, he had a job that didn't allow him to play on the baseball team. So he ends up playing again as a senior, but isn't recruited by any schools. Only the local community college offered him a spot on the baseball team. We've discussed Lincoln Land Community College in the Pat Perry episode. Joe went five and eight and one and three in his two years at Lincoln Land. He said he was just getting into weights and adjusting. And he had a good quote, I think, about his time and community college ball. And that was that I got my ass handed to me all around the cornfields of Illinois. But one important part of his community college experience with Lincoln Land was that they made a couple trips to New Orleans to play against Delgado Community College New Orleans became his home many times throughout his career. The University of New Orleans had a coach named Tom Schwanner. He would be at the school until 1999. His predecessor was an Illinoisan named Ron Maestri. Maestri's dad had seen Joe at Lincoln Land Community College and suggested him to coach Schwanner. He also suggested Brian Traxler, who would have a cup of coffee in the majors, and University of New Orleans also had Ted Wood, another 1988 Tops Olympian. Joe gets recruited, gets the call. He's six foot four, 195 at this point. He had been a reliever, but UNO wanted to make him a starter. And so he makes the upgrade from community college to the four-year university. And his first year at UNO, they went 44-19 and played in the NCAA regional. 
Joe was outstanding, 13-1 and with a 2.87 ERA. He struck out 100 in 122 innings. He said, it all clicked. It was the culmination of the training that I got at Lincoln Land. Plus, I had matured, and there was the warm weather, and we had a good club. In one game against South Carolina, Joe gave up six runs in the first inning. Schwanner said, I went out to the mound. He was looking for me to pull him. I said, you think you're coming out of this? You're crazy. Slusarski didn't give up another run, and UNO won the game 7-6. to six. According to Schwanner, Joe made himself a major leaguer right there with his attitude. Joe was picked by Seattle in the sixth round of the 87 draft, but he had an opportunity to play for Team USA in the Pan Am Games. This was the precursor to the 1988 Olympics. And Joe also didn't like that Seattle waited to make him an offer, so he decided not to sign and played for Team USA, went 3-0 and in the Pan Am Games, and returned to New Orleans for 1988, rooming with Traxler. Similar to Mike Gator Greenwell, we have reptiles on the show again. I figure in New Orleans, everybody has a pet alligator. They just wander yeah. into your house. Yeah, or a pelican or a nutria. Yes. Or a giant king cake baby. Or Nicolas Cage. Those are all of, that's all, <laughs> Those everything are your we choices. <laughs> you you got to pick one. Everybody gets one. <laughs> so they had an alligator named Volkov, named after the wrestler Nikolai Volkov. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, Traxler is not in this set, but he seemed like a pretty ridiculous guy. Big wrestling fan, big heavy metal fan. Anybody who has a pet alligator in their college dorm room they deserve their own episode even if they don't have a 1988 tops card according to slusarski the gator started out about a foot long and then he got to be about three feet and was swimming around the tub he used to hang out under the tv so coming back to the university of new orleans joe ends up with a fun fact that he led the american south conference and wins in 1988 a conference co-MVP, he was voted to the All-NCAA Central Regional Tourney Team, which is a high honor. That is not on his LinkedIn. He went 13-6 and six that senior year with a 3.37, 146 strikeouts and 160 innings. And UNO again made the NCAA Regional Tournament. And in the first game, he, Joe faced Jim Abbott and Michigan, losing 6-4 to four when he gave up a ninth-inning home run. Oh, no. A big disappointment to end his college career, but a really great college career, 26-7 and seven overall, 246 strikeouts and 282 innings. Very good two seasons at UNO. Yeah, and good enough that he ended up doing well in the draft, and that leads us to a this way to the clubhouse on the card that Joe was a draft selection by the Oakland Athletics June 1st, 1988, after being scouted by Bill Gayton. Scout talk here. Bill Gayton is from South Dakota and is of Native American heritage. Both of his paternal great-grandmothers were Lakota. He was drafted by the White Sox, but after a couple minor league seasons, he became a scout for the White Sox, then spent time at various points with the A's, Yankees, Rockies, Cardinals, Padres, and Diamondbacks. And in 2020, Gayton was honored with the George Genovese Lifetime Achievement Award in Scouting. Joe was picked in the second round with pick number 46, and after the draft, he rejoined Team USA for the Olympic run-up along with his teammate Ted Wood. He was able to travel to Japan and Italy to play in the pre-Olympic tournaments, and he called it the happiest summer of his life. 
He pitched in 20 games, according to USA Baseball's official stats, with a 5-3 and three record, 4.05 ERA, 52 strikeouts in 53 innings, and Team USA won the gold medal, defeating Japan in the final. He signed with the A's in October and spent a couple weeks at Instructional League. He spent 1989 at A-Ball in Modesto. He went 13-10 and 10 with a 3.18 ERA and a whip of 1.1. At this point, he's a really highly rated prospect. Going into the 1990 season, he was a top 100 prospect in Major League Baseball, but he didn't have the best numbers. He went 6-8 and eight with a 4.47 ERA. His whip was up a bit, but the A's liked him and pushed him to AAA that season. And his numbers improved a little bit, 4-2 and two with a 3.40 ERA and nine starts at Tacoma. He was supposed to start 1991 in Tacoma, but was called up to Oakland hours before Oakland's third game of the season. Eric Schau was injured, and Joe got the start against Minnesota. Here it is, his big league debut, seven scoreless innings to get a win. He would go back and forth between Oakland and Tacoma, get recalled, struggle, go back to AAA. He never really got in a rhythm. We have a good quote here from Tony Larusa. I'm a Joe Slusarski supporter. Put that on a button. I know, really. You can see that on a campaign poster. I'd like to give him a start. That way, I think he can get it going. And he had a complete game, two-hitter in late July. But then the A's brought in Ron Darling, so Joe went back to Triple A. He came back up in August to close out the season. Overall, finished 5-7 and seven with a 5.27 ERA with the A's. And 4-2 and two record, 2.72 ERA with Tacoma. Larusa had another quote. He said, we've rewarded Joe Slusarski for two great starts with a trip to AAA. And, Man. like, whose fault is that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, funny joke. I'm sure he loved hearing that. And so that was how it went for him the first season. In 1992, he's slotted in to be the A's fifth starter, but he had one of the strangest injuries that we have come across. And Matt, you are a golfer, so I don't know yeah. if, if any of this frightens you from golfing in the Southwest. It really does. I'll tell this story, and it really did terrify me when I read it, and I tried to look up some of the pictures describing this injury, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm afraid. I'm a very afraid. So it's a bit of a content warning here for any golf fans out there. In spring training, Joe was at a golf outing with Rick Honeycutt and Gene Nelson in Scottsdale, Arizona, and he hit a ball into the water and went to go get his ball. Now, I have a standing rule that if I hit a ball in the water, I don't ever try to get it out because only bad things can happen, plus the ball is probably cursed. And he's got a history with alligators. And, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know about case, Arizona. Are there alligators there? There's probably There probably are. There's snakes, there's lizards, there's Komodo dragons, there's probably other dragons. I don't know. Tons of dragons. So Joe hits the ball in the water. As he went to get his ball, he said he bumped into this cactus that looked like a bush or a tree. The spines stuck in my left bicep, and I slipped and stuck my hand out to break my fall. The plant, which is called the jumping choya, drops balls to seed itself and one of the sticker balls buried deep into his pitching hand into his right hand as he's catching himself on the ground 
So he jumps up screaming, and this is the worst part. A guy came out with a pocket comb to pull the spines out. First of all, if this happened to me, David, I would want the jaws of life and whatever kind of medevac helicopter could take me to the nearest emergency medical center, five-star hospital, to like try to rescue my hand. But no, he has a guy come out with a pocket comb to try to pull the spines out of his hand. They weren't just in his fingertips. They were deep into the palm, and he said halfway up his Mm. fingers, and it had damaged tendons in his middle finger. So a day or so later, when I woke up, I had sausages for fingers. Oh, it's terrible. I watched videos of people testing the strength of these jumping choya stickers with very little pressure. They stick into the skin and you have to really pull to get them off. So if he fell with pressure, I could just imagine that being terribly painful and those things going deep into your finger. He said, I couldn't snap my fingers. It affected my grip. I couldn't throw my slider. I couldn't spread my fingers for the split. I had just a fastball and I was overcompensating. I overthrew and strained my shoulder. Yeah, it ruined his year. His first 12 starts, he was 4-4 four and four with an ERA over 5.5. Opponents were hitting 295 against him. But we'll see, he ends up having shoulder problems and other issues from this injury for a couple of years. He was sent to the bullpen and then back to AAA. He finished the season with a 5-5 five and five record in the majors and a 5.45 ERA. Thanks to golf. Through two seasons, he's only played 35 games in the majors, made 33 starts. And over the next seven seasons, he would appear in just 17 more major league games. After the 1992 season, he has shoulder surgery to fix a tear and some chronic bursitis. He's expected to compete and come back to the A's the next season, but he ends up starting at AAA. In 1993, he only made two appearances for the A's. His shoulder was still hurting and he was just less effective even at AAA. The next season, he's signed to AAA to start 1994, but he gets started slowly and is released. So going from a top prospect to just four years later, released by the Oakland Athletics, he signs with Philadelphia and finishes out the 1994 season in a disappointing fashion with Philly before the strike ends the season. To start 1995, he signed with Cleveland, And in spring training, he planned to be a replacement player in case that happened. He wasn't sure if he would end up crossing the picket line if the season had actually started on time. He was assigned to AAA, released early, signed with Milwaukee. And Milwaukee's AAA affiliate was in New Orleans. And so he came back to the city that meant a lot to him. This homecoming worked well for Joe. He was outstanding coming out of the bullpen. It's probably the beignets or... Perhaps the coffee with chicory in it. I love that. He went one and one with a 1.12 ERA coming out of the bullpen and a whip under one. This earned him a call up to Milwaukee, and he actually tried to convince his manager to keep him down because he was concerned that his status as a replacement player, as a scab, might lead to resentment and issues with the big league club. He said he didn't have problems with his teammates. It only affected his merchandise royalties. But really, David, he was one of only two players who had had major league experience before and after the strike. So it put him in kind of a very shaky position. 
Yeah, not a lot of guys who were good enough on either end of that to get recalled after that strike. In 1995, he appeared in only 12 games, pitched 15 innings, had a ERA over five. So nothing special in that 1995 season. The next year, he's back in New Orleans, and he couldn't recreate the magic. Didn't earn a call up, had a pretty high ERA. And so in 1997, he went to Taiwan. He thought that it could be a stepping stone to Japan, but he would later find out that the MPB didn't hold CPBL in high regard. They were concerned about both the level of play, but also the gambling that had taken over CPBL at this point. And this was also around the time that the Taiwan Major League was starting. So there's a bidding war between the two leagues. SLU's old teammate Ted Wood also came to Taiwan. Joe had a nice time. He said he liked the people, he liked the cities, and there was all different kinds of fruit there. Sounds like a great time. And according to friend of the show Andrew's book about foreign players in the CPBL, the Sinon Bulls, who were formerly the Jungo Bears, were owned by the huge Sinon Agrochemical Corporation. They cleverly named several of the foreign players after the conglomerate's best-selling pesticides. That meant that former Oakland A's starting pitcher Joe Slusarski, for example, was now known as Tai Sha Shang, Sinon's commercial name for chlorapyridinol methyl nitroamidazolidinamine, a chemical which is useful in killing aphids, mealybugs, and whitefly. So to name your player after such an important compound, just brilliant marketing. This is our new first baseman roundup. <laughs> Actually, the inventor of Roundup went to SHG. 1997, unfortunately, was a cursed year for the CPBL with both the emergence of that rival and also the game-fixing scandal that I believe we discussed on the Pasquale Perez episode. Andrew said he didn't remember the Bulls being a part of that scandal. He said they were usually a pretty good team, but not a real standout franchise. And they have changed their name twice more to the Rhinos, which was the team that Manny Ramirez played for. And now they're called the Fubon Guardians. Slusarski said that that specter of gambling was in the back of his mind and that he saw guys diving over balls and throwing them into the stands. And after a season, he just was over it. And he knew that he wasn't going to get his shot in Japan. So he just decided to come back stateside. So 1998, he returned to the States and was training at the University of New Orleans with the new coach, Randy Bush, who also has a card in the set. Joe got a walk-on tryout with the Houston Astros. He played at AA and AAA, not particularly effective. Combined had 40 games in the minors and an ERA near 5.5. However, he did get to experience a triple-A World Series win with teammates Casey Candell and Pete Incavilia. It's a good team. And in 1999, he's really good in New Orleans. He pitched in 40 games, 3.64 ERA, and he got a call-up for the first time since 1995. He said, you toil and you toil and you toil. You're building towards something. You have to be patient. Later in my career, I went back to square one, back to the fundamentals. He appeared in three games before he was sent to the DL with a strained groin. So after all that work, gets back to the pros and then gets injured. Uh, he was released after that 1999 season, but re-signed with Houston in January 2000. Had a good stretch at AAA and got called up and led the Astros 
In the year 2000, at age 34, he led the Astros with 54 appearances. Houston manager Larry Durker, liking his versatility, he said as a former starter, he could pitch multiple inning appearances. He got the only three saves of his career, including a three-inning save. Overall, went 2-7 and seven with a 4.21 ERA, but it was a 118 ERA plus in 77 innings. So this is the best year of his career. And he was ready to go again in 2001. He wanted to go back to Houston, but he felt like he got mixed messages. Atlanta ends up offering him a better deal, so he goes to spring training and earned a spot on Atlanta's roster. After pitching four games in five days, in which he gave up a run in each appearance, he ends up injured. He had a herniated disc in his neck. He's sent to AAA for rehab. He pitches well, but when he came off the DL, Atlanta designated him for assignment As a veteran player, he was allowed to refuse the assignment. He said he didn't have a problem pitching in AAA, but he didn't want to pitch at Richmond. And so he became a free agent, and the Astros picked him up again, and he goes back to New Orleans. I just I love that that he just he turned down the AAA assignment for Richmond, Virginia, just so he could go back to New Orleans, and it worked out. He was five and two that last season with a two point four eight ERA in the minors. Earned a call up again in June with eight appearances, giving up 10 earned runs and 10 innings, and was sent back down, and that was it. He called it a career. So closing the book on Joe Slusarski, seven seasons in the big leagues with a record of 13 wins, 21 losses, and a 5.18 ERA in 118 appearances. That's an ERA plus of 82. How about in retirement? He initially worked with Randy Bush as pitching coach for University of New Orleans. And then he was a pitching coach for the Round Rock Express, the Astros AA team owned by Nolan Ryan. For a little while, he was the Rangers AA affiliate pitching coach. And then he spent 10 plus years not in baseball. He worked in building supplies, project management, sales, worked in HVAC installation, energy efficiency consulting from 2009 to 2021. And then he returned to coaching as a pitching instructor at DBAT Academies in Austin, Texas. So, David, we have a traded card. He's in his Team USA uniform. After going through this whole story, now what do we think? From top 100 prospect to spending six years basically out of baseball, and then coming back, he said what kept him going was unfinished business. He felt like he still had something to give to the game, And still, to this day, he still feels like he has something to give back to young players as a pitching coach. And of his career, he said, there's an underappreciation of what the journeymen go through, what they sacrifice. I didn't retire a millionaire. I'm going to have to work. Kids need to know it's a hard road. A lot of things have to happen right to get that money on the table. Then you have to perform to earn it. So it wasn't just that he had unfinished business. This was his job and this was his life. Because he wasn't a millionaire, he needed to keep playing because that's all he knew. He said, I got every opportunity. I had some bad breaks, but everybody does. I wouldn't trade it. I gave it everything. I made a living, paid the bills, traveled the world, and made a lot of friends. We talked about Springfield earlier. And so along with Abraham Lincoln's brief career playing baseball, in that he was supposedly playing town ball when he was informed that he was the nominee for the presidency, Abraham Lincoln has this quote 
And this quote is on the back of his statue outside of the Capitol. And it's a quote that that always strikes me as I'm leaving the Capitol. Sometimes after a rough day, I look at this this quote and it sometimes can make me emotional because it's really beautiful. And this was Lincoln's farewell address when he was leaving Springfield. He was on his way to Washington, D.C., and he would never return alive to Springfield. He said, to this place and the kindness of these people, I owe everything. Here I have lived a quarter of a century and have passed from a young to an old man. Here my children have been born and one is buried. I now leave, not knowing when or whether ever I may return, with a task before me greater than that which rested upon Washington. And this is a thing that I always point out to people, that the importance of Springfield to Lincoln was that they gave him a chance. And Joe's coach at Lincoln Land, of course, named for Abraham Lincoln in in the county, when Joe was elected to the Springfield Sports Hall of Fame, said he was a perfect example of what community college can do for a young man. We put him on the right track and the rest of it was all on him. He was 6'4", 195. He had physical gifts, but he wasn't a particularly good pitcher in high school. But somebody gave him a shot. But for taking that chance, who knows where he would have been? He wouldn't have gotten a college tryout. He probably would have just gone to work, gotten a different job, and his any dream that he had of playing professional sports would have been over. But he was given that chance, and he could have fallen through the cracks. And then, because of that, he's given this shot in New Orleans. And it's just both his hard work and people's seeing something in him keeps giving him chances. He ends up going to New Orleans, developing and shining and earning the chance to represent the United States, getting drafted, and then he keeps coming back to New Orleans, and that becomes his home. In the same way that Springfield wasn't Abraham Lincoln's first home, Joe Slusarski's first home wasn't New Orleans, but it was this place that kept giving him opportunities. This is a guy who didn't really have that chance, and then at 34, finally puts it all together after traveling the world. It's an interesting story. It really is. He got to see the world, he got to experience the highs, to win a minor league World Series, and win a gold medal with Team USA. So an accomplished career, but not a conventional one, and a great card in red, white, and blue. So thank you very much for that today, David. And thank you to you at home. If you ever had a bad golf shot really ruin your day, we'd love to hear all about it on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.